This is the best of the BuzzMeter podcast with Howie Kurtz. It's the Media BuzzMeter with Howard Kurtz. The Washington football team is so lame that it can't even come up with a name after a couple of years. I mean, how hard is it to devise some kind of moniker? And yet, the Washington football team, 2-6 and six record on the season. Yesterday, I was watching the game, beat the world champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers and greatest of all time, Tom Brady. I still don't know how it happened. I mean, there's a pretty big talent gap between the two teams. Brady threw two first quarter interceptions. And the Washington just, especially in the fourth quarter, did this 10-minute drive, the kind of thing that Brady would routinely do, to hold on to the ball, sit on the lead. Uh, And Tampa Bay never got on track. 29-19 was the final score after the game. Brady was uh, pretty terse with the press, shall we say, uh, as a grand total of three questions. Uh, How about those interceptions, Tom? We started with the ball, and they came away with it. So thanks, guys. Have a good day. That's it. Brady says, we lost. And then he answered a couple more questions. Uh, Interesting. It's the old NFL on any given Sunday. Any team can beat any other team. Uh, Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg reporting that Donald Trump is in the process of selling his D.C. hotel, which was once the crown jewel of his empire. Uh, An outfit called the CGI Merchant Group will buy the rights to the hotel for $375 million dollars. It's been reported it will be now, of course, his name will be taken off and will be rebranded uh, as a Waldorf Astoria, most likely. Um, you know, it's a, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous building that for years and years and years was known as the old post office because it actually was a working post office. It's got this great clock tower where you used to be able to go up in an elevator and have a panoramic view of D.C. Um, you know, Trump, the thing I remember about it is... In 2016, while he was running for president, Trump called a news conference at the still-being-renovated hotel uh, to talk about Barack Obama and the birther controversy that he horribly, uh, you know, helped generate. And um, he basically uttered one sentence. He said, Barack Obama was born in the United States. And then he proceeded to take the reporters on a tour of the hotel. It became this promotional thing for the hotel. And all the Trump people would always say we're going to the hotel, and the hotel was the place. I mean, it, it was a gorgeous hotel, uh, but it lost money for Trump in part because of the name. All right, uh, I want to take you behind the scenes and talk a little bit about my life on Friday. Uh, I'm in the office. Fridays are always busy. I'm making all kinds of last-minute changes for Media Buzz. At the same time, I'm working on a TV package for special report on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. I'll touch on that in a few minutes. Uh, so it's a really heavy day. And of course, I had to do the podcast. Um, and so late afternoon, I finally feel like I'm getting my head above water. And I see flashing across the television screens, Steve Bannon indicted. Steve Bannon indicted. In other words, the, the Biden Justice Department uh, deciding to enforce the House contempt of Congress vote against the one-time White House official, one-time Trump campaign chairman uh, for refusing to obey a subpoena. And meanwhile, also what was brewing Friday was that Mark Meadows, uh, former White House chief of staff, in the process of being cited for contempt because he's not going to cooperate. And that's kind of amazing because he's a former colleague of uh, those who will be voting, or many of those at least, who will be voting on a contempt citation for Meadows. Um, so we obviously then had to make changes to the show and deal with the bad indictment. And CNN went absolutely wall-to-wall with it. Uh, MSNBC went absolutely wall-to-wall with it. And literally, there was no other story. Fox did not uh, do anywhere near as much. 
and then I thought, okay, now that's done. And then got word that the Washington Post had run a major sweeping correction, highly unusual, uh, having to do with the Steele dossier in the wake of the indictment of the primary source for Christopher Steele, a guy named Igor Danchenko. In any event, the Post did the right thing journalistically, went back, looked at its old stories, and just took out major portions of what it had published in two different pieces during the Trump administration. And the Post, of course, won a Pulitzer Prize, not just for this, but for Russia-related reporting, as did uh, the New York Times. And so that was a complicated story. So it was decided that because, you know, it's a couple of hours before airtime that I would do my report on the media and Kyle Rittenhouse. And then I'd have 60 seconds to talk to Brett Baer uh, and kind of summarize this pretty complicated story about um, whether this other guy whose name is Million was a source for Steele. He always denied it. That's been removed from the post. The stuff about the Trump and the prostitutes and the Moscow Hotel never any shred of substantiation for that. So I had to pack all that in. So it was a busy Friday, folks. Speaking of Bannon, uh, Washington Post has a story up today saying Republicans are rallying around him. Uh, They are warning the Democrats that if they take back the House, which seems kind of likely next year, of course, a year is a lifetime in politics, that they will go after Biden's aides uh, and try to get uh, for some of them to testify, and they will be able to wield the weapon of contempt of Congress. Here, for example, is a tweet from Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. For years, the Democrats basically accused President Trump of weaponizing the DOJ. In reality, it's the left that has been weaponizing the DOJ the entire time from the false Russia hoax uh, and so forth and so on. Well, first of all, I I don't want to digress here, but Donald Trump did a lot of interfering with criminal investigations, just with the public words that he spoke. Uh, And secondly, you know, there is a case to be made for executive privilege. This came up in Watergate. This came up uh, with Obama when Eric Holder was held in contempt by a Republican House uh, during the Fast and Furious investigation or the investigation of the investigation. Um, But it, it applies the least, I think, to Steve Bannon, because he had been out of the White House for years when he was talking uh, to Rudy and others about the run-up to January 6th. And also, it's a lawful subpoena from the House of Representatives, partisan as though it, though it might be, uh, to find out uh, what happened with you know a horrible attack on democracy, the Capitol riot on January 6th of this year. So to just say, well, this is all political persecution, kind of misses the point that, you know, the Supreme Court ruled in U.S. v. Nixon that if there's a legitimate criminal investigation, uh, you know, executive privilege doesn't hold up. Now, is this a partisan decision by Merrick Garland? That's obviously open for debate. Uh, The last person to actually go to jail for uh, contempt of Congress was an EPA official named Rita Lavelle, who I covered in the Reagan administration back in 1983. And look, anytime he wants... Bannon can end this by agreeing to testify. So we'll see what happens. Um, Also, I mentioned Rittenhouse, uh, the closing arguments in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial today. I had Andy McCarthy on from National Review, did a magnificent job, I thought, of explaining how um, many people who follow trials or criminal cases, they project onto defendants, for example, um, their own political views. So if you... All the media stuff about Kyle Rittenhouse is a white supremacist, he's a murderer, he's an awful human being. Look, I didn't defend him. I thought 
that for a 17-year-old to take an AR-15 into what was obviously the violent streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin, was a really unfortunate thing. I think it's a tragedy for everybody, the two people who were fatally shot, the guy who was wounded. But the trial testimony has shown that Rittenhouse does have a plausible case for self-defense. Anyway, the National Guard is going to be called out in Wisconsin. Uh, although usually, you know, let's say the verdict goes against the prosecution and Rittenhouse is acquitted. Well, you got to say... Um, Often the riots, as the riots in Portland and Seattle and so many other cities last year in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd, are a racial matter. But in this particular case, even though the, the, the media cast it as racial, Kyle Rittenhouse is white and all three men who he shot were white. So I don't know if there will be violence or not. I certainly hope not. Uh, what I said on the air was, Rittenhouse, uh, whatever you think of him, whatever you think uh, how reckless he may have been, he's entitled to a fair trial, not a trial by media. So we'll see how that plays out. Um, interesting, the press seems uh, really determined to, right now, I would say, talk up Pete Buttigieg and talk down Kamala Harris. Uh, this is all 2024 speculation. The, the conventional wisdom in the press is... You know, even if he, if his popularity rebounds and he gets his legislation through, that the prospect of Joe Biden running for re-election three years from now, when he will be 82 years old, which would mean he'll be 86 at the end of his second term, uh, a lot of people just don't believe the ritual, of course, I'm running for a second term. So that naturally would put a spotlight on the vice president. So CNN has this story pretty hard knock on Kamala Harris. Uh, one of the authors is Edward Isaac Dovier, who was at The Atlantic, did some of this reporting on the vice president's office there. Uh, the CNN piece says that uh, presidential aides in the West Wing are now worn out by what they see as entrenched dysfunction and lack of focus uh, on the part of Vice President Harris and her staff. There isn't time to deal with them right now. And the frustrations run both ways. Based on interviews with nearly three dozen former and current Harris aides, administration officials, Democratic operatives, blah, blah, um, reveal that many in the VP's circle fume that she's not being adequately prepared or positioned and instead is being sidelined. Uh, Kamala herself has told several confidants she feels constrained in what she's able to do politically, and those around her may wary of even hinting at future political ambitions because Biden's team is highly attuned to signs of disloyalty particularly from the vice president. Look, Biden understands this turf because he was the VP for eight years for Obama. You, obviously, you harbor ambitions, as Biden did, to run for president, though he decided against it in 2016. But you don't want to be seen as carrying out your own agenda because if the president loses confidence in you, you got nothing. I mean, any influence uh, that the vice president has is because the president has decided to grant that influence. Uh, Few of the insiders, says the CNN piece, think she's being well-prepared for whatever role she will have. She's struggling with a rocky relationship with some parts of the White House. Um, she obviously gets outsized attention as the first uh, woman and first woman of color to serve uh, in national elected office. Uh, and the defenders and people who care about Harris are getting frantic. Uh, first of all, the Harris people think like any tiny misstep she makes, you know, gets outside outsized attention from the press. And there may be something to that. Secondly, 
uh, so for one thing, it's, it's, she's not clearing the field. Like other Democrats who think Biden may not run or may not be able to run, um, they're lining up. And I'll get to more of that in just a moment. Uh, apparently there was an Onion headline, White House urges Kamala Harris to sit at computer all day in case emails come through. Um, and there's even, you know, baseless chatter that Biden might try to sideline her by naming her to Supreme Court vacancy. Uh, she is a lawyer. Uh, and then pick somebody else. Uh, but, you know, it is also true that she's been politically clumsy at times, and but she's given thankless tasks like dealing with the border. And, um, you know, where was she when they were trying to get enough votes to get the infrastructure bill passed? She, one day she was touring a NASA space flight center uh, in suburban Maryland. You know, they could have spun the story that she was a key player buttonholing people on the Hill, but she didn't do that, and they couldn't spin it that way. Meanwhile, this is just one of a number of stories. The AP has a piece about Pete Buttigieg, uh, who now, of course, is going to play an outsized role because as transportation secretary, he is going to control much of the $1 trillion infrastructure law that Biden will sign today. Uh, and he's you know, talking to reporters about more electric cars, intercity train routes, bigger airports. Uh, and then he got a question uh, the other day. Well, how about building racial equity into infrastructure? And the former mayor of South Bend talked about, you know, a lot of highways were, were built in minority and impoverished areas that did sort of contribute to uh, poor conditions in inner cities and that some of that could be revisited. And he got criticized for that. Um, but interestingly, here's the AP nut graph, as we say. Racial equity is an issue where Democratic priorities and Buttigieg's future align. One of his greatest shortcomings as a White House candidate was his inability to win over black votes. How he navigates that heading into the 2022 midterms will probably shape the fortunes of Biden's agenda and the Democratic Party, if not his own prospects. Look, I think much more important. I mean, look, if the transportation bill goes badly, if the infrastructure bill goes badly, Buttigieg will get some of the blame. If it goes well, I don't know that he gets the credit because Biden gets the credit for passing the bill. And this guy is just a cabinet officer. But he's on TV, you know, far more than Kamala Harris, far more than anybody. I mean, I think he's on TV more than Joe Biden in terms of being put out there for interviews, both to sell this package and just generally as a Sunday morning guy and a spokesman. He's very, very good on TV. I mean, I think that's the reason he was able to ultimately win the Iowa caucuses, even though he was this, you know, obscure Indiana mayor. Uh, so that, I think, is what puts him in a potential position to run again for president if he so chooses. Doesn't mean that any of his other problems would disappear. Uh, he would both be helped and hurt, perhaps, uh, by running to be the first openly gay president. Uh, at the same time, you know, he's handled himself well. Um, but he's got those TV skills, and he really is almost... He, if you just looked at it in TV terms, you would think that Pete Buttigieg is the deputy president. Uh, that's how much he's on. That's how little Biden is on. And Kamala Harris is not allowed or chooses not to do many interviews. And when she does uh, talk to the press, you know, after events and so forth, she's just very, very cautious. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Most people, by which I mean most normal people, don't pay that much attention to polls. They want to know what's the popularity of the president or presidential candidate or in their home state. Uh, what is the popularity of the governor or somebody challenging the governor or the mayor and on and on. But there is, and on that front, on that front, the news has been almost uniformly bad for Joe Biden. Uh, Washington Post ABC has a poll out. 
a new poll saying that Biden's uh, number, approval number, the all-important approval number, has dropped to 41%. So you see these headlines, Biden hits new low. Well, it is a new low for the Washington Post-ABC poll. If you look at uh, another poll that came out last late, late last week, he was down to 38%. So you see a lot of these new lows or new highs, and it's only compared to, because news organizations, A, pay for these polls. <laughs> I don't really need to get to B. They, they pay for the polls. And B, they tend to be um, kind of heavily focused on their own operation. So, you know, however you slice or dice it, being at 41 or 38% approval underwater, as the pollsters say. In other words, many more people disapproving. Not good if you are a president uh, who's been in office for 10 months. And you know the litany of reasons. But there's one uh, number in this new post-ABC poll that came out over the weekend that um, kind of gone off like a neutron bomb here inside the Beltway. Uh, because people might also pay attention to like right track, run track, or something like that. But for those who are sitting around, and to everybody else, it's ridiculously early, it's a year out, but those who are sitting around wondering who will win the midterm elections next November, House and Senate, this number is like a head-smacking moment. Uh, Now, it's a generic question, and it's always asked, and, you know, a lot of people have a very, very dim view of Congress or of a political party but they like their own member of Congress. And so there's a little bit of a disconnect there. Oh, no, no, you know, uh, Congressman so-so, he's doing a great job. But those bozos in the House or those clowns in the Senate, not so much. It's a very broad gauge, in other words. But nevertheless, compared to the historical past, this is something. Uh, You know, if the election were held tomorrow, uh, would you support a Democratic or Republican candidate? What do you think about that? That's the question that was asked. And, you know, I have to add the caveat a year away. Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what foreign crises there may be? Who knows if this other uh, big Biden spending bill gets passed or whatever? Um, But the other interesting thing here, and I'll get to the congressional number in a moment, giving you the big buildup here, is that Biden's biggest policy initiatives, according to this poll, are more popular than he is. 63% support for the $1 trillion infrastructure bill uh, that he will finally sign into law today, and 58% support for this social spending bill, Build Back Better, Climate Change, Child Tax Credit, Pre-K, and all that bill, nearly $2 trillion. But when you ask what kind of job Biden is doing, maybe because he doesn't seem a forceful president, maybe because uh, he's uh, a very low-profile president, as I have talked about before, maybe because of Afghanistan, maybe because he couldn't get his own party to agree for months to pass the infrastructure bill. But the initiatives themselves, when you take out the baggage of who's president, much more popular. But here's the thing. If the midterm elections were held today in this poll, 51% of registered voters say they would support the Republican candidate in their district. 41% say they would support the Democratic candidate in their district. That is the biggest lead for the GOP. Um in this poll, going back to 1981. In fact, it it is a blowout number. For one thing, I mean, even in some of these districts, they don't even know exactly who's going to have the nomination. But it's only the second time the GOP has held a statistically significant advantage. Um, That was 2002. And only the ninth time it's held any advantage at all. 
And I was looking back in some of the midterms where Republicans have done very well in a congressional election. Um, the number now would be, you know, the GOP up by two or up by three. Ten, ten points shows a level of absolute disillusionment, distrust, disgust with Democrats on Capitol Hill. And look, it makes sense. Who are you going to blame if you're worried about the economy? And there's this whole debate about uh, is the economy uh, doing better because we have 4.6% unemployment because our economy generated 500,000 plus jobs last month because the stock market is at record highs. At the same time, the same poll, I saw this the other day, 70% have a negative view of the economy. 70%. People think things are not good. Whether they think things are not good overall or in their own families or in their own communities, that's not good for the incumbent party. But as I was saying, when one party controls the White House, the Senate, and the House, even though razor-thin margins, and as you know, 50-50 Senate, if things aren't getting done or inflation is uh, running pretty high, over 6% now on an annual basis now. We talked about this on Media Buzz. Um, who are you going to blame? You can't blame the Republicans. They don't control anything. Yes, you could say they didn't cooperate on this, that, or the other thing, but you know that gets down to a level of political science analysis. So the Democrats are taking a beating here. Now, I doubt when we get to November of 2022 that there'll be a 10-point edge between the parties. I mean, that would be a blowout, a landslide, really. But as a, just as a barometer, a snapshot of where we are now, not good news for the Dems. Politico has a story. You know, there's so much focus now going back and looking at the Trump administration on January 6th, on the Capitol riot, on the former president's claims of a stolen election, the unproven claims, uh, that that has getting, is taking up a lot of the media oxygen. But when it comes to COVID, which, you know, a lot of people feel like, well, we've certainly turned the corner. But we still haven't broken it. And that number of new daily cases on average uh, dropped, as I've said, from, you know, a couple months ago, 160,000 new cases a day to 70,000. But then over the weekend, it crept up to an average of 80,000. So it's stubbornly resistant, even as more people get vaccinated and get their booster shots. And some um, kids get vaccinated, too, 5 to 11. Anyway, looking back, this is the House Select Subcommittee on Coronavirus Crisis. Uh, they've got new email, emails and documents. I'm just looking at the political piece here on this about the Trump White House and the attempt, attempts to sideline the agency at critical moments when the coronavirus thing was brand new. We were all kind of freaking out about it. Now, look, President Biden has also had his difficulties. He wanted booster shots uh, for every American, every American who had at least six months since their last COVID-19 vaccine. CDC has not gone along with that. In reality, I think anybody can go get it right now. I just don't think it's that rigorous, and I don't have any problem with it. But it's supposed to be only for over 65, and if you have a pre-existing condition or a weak immune system, and things of that nature. So, back in 2020, in the early days, when the pandemic was just hitting, when it's like it'll be, it'll be gone by April, it'll vanish by the summer, and all of that, uh, the emails and transcripts detail how Donald Trump and his allies in the White House blocked media briefings and interviews with CDC officials, uh, attempted to alter public safety guidance that normally had to be cleared by the Centers for Disease Control, and instructed, that means you don't have a choice, agency officials to destroy evidence that might be construed as political interference. 
And it shows you how these Trump appointees really did get in the face of these scientists and career staff at the CDC to try to get them in line with the administration's messaging on COVID, which was, it ain't that bad. So for example, um, top infectious disease official, Nancy Messonnier, told reporters, uh, this is at a news conference in February of 2020, she expected the community spread within the U.S. Uh, and the disruptions to everyday life could be severe. That was her word, severe. It was real at the time. It was the most blunt or one of the first really blunt assessments from a top-level CDC official about what was coming down the pike. Um, and that frustrated Trump, according to these documents. So she was interviewed by the committee. She said, I believe that my remarks were accurate based on the information we had at the time. I heard that the president was unhappy with the telebriefing. So then after she made some additional comments five days later, HHS, which oversees CDC, officials there called another news conference. And again, here's another official from CDC telling the committee, the impression I was given was that the reaction to the morning briefing was quite volatile. And having another briefing, you know, later I think I got the impression that having another briefing might get, you know, there was nothing new to report, but get additional voices out there talking about the situation. From that point, the White House took the lead on the federal response, controlling all communications and messaging about the virus, denying CDC requests to hold its own briefings. And this top official says, uh, we would submit a request to the others to do a briefing, and it was declined, and then, or we didn't get approval to be able to do one. This was all an effort to control the message. You know, Anthony Fauci, not part of CDC, but uh, had the same problem. You know, he could only go on television when uh, the White House said it was okay. Now, look, there's always an, a tension here between uh, a president wanting an administration to speak with one voice. You can't have everybody going on television or giving interviews to reporters and saying different things. But when it involves a scientific matter, life and death matter, as it turns out, I mean, this is when, you know, if a thousand people died, it was a big deal. Now we're at 750,000. And you have a White House for political reasons, and all White Houses act for political reasons. I'm not exempting, I'm not saying this is something unique to Donald Trump. But he did exhibit, and this, at least his aides exhibited, and this backs it up with documents and emails, you know, uh, an unusual um, attempt to try to control or tamp down or calibrate the scientific message, as he admitted to Bob Woodward in that earlier Woodward book. Uh, I didn't want to alarm the country. It was my job to keep the morale up. I didn't want people to panic. Well, that's understandable to a point, but if things are getting bad and more drastic action is needed, as clearly was the case now that we look back with the benefit of hindsight, um, this is just sort of helping to fill in the record. Okay, so this is classic clickbait. Classic. You had to click on it. I mean, not everybody had to click on it. And of course, the only reason that I clicked on it was so that I could share it with you as part of my continuing podcast duties. But um, the Meghan Markle, I don't even have to identify her, right? Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, if she still has that title, I guess she sort of does, uh, is being touted in this piece in the British uh, publication, The Spectator, the website is Spectator World, as a potential candidate for president of the United States. That's right. 
the very, uh, the woman who sat down with Oprah, the high celebrity, the woman who talked about how poorly she had been treated by the British royal family, and then she and Harry just got out, and huge spat with the Queen, worldwide attention. Now she's here in America, back in America in her case, and she's eyeing the White House. What evidence, folks, is there of this? Well, she marked her 40th birthday by writing an open letter as a mom to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and asked uh, Congress to legislate paid family leave for new parents. Well, clearly she must have some ambition in mind, right? Um, She was trying to get this into the the Biden's Build Back Better uh, Act, but this is not the only open door Megan is pushing out. I probably should do this in a British accent, but my British accent is not that great. Uh, Seasoned observers will notice that Markle trademarks in the letter. This is the folksy appeal to her humble heritage. I grew up on the 499 salad bar at Sizzler. I used to like Sizzler. I knew how hard my parents worked to afford this because even at five bucks, eating out was something special and I felt lucky. This is kind of like the Lincoln and the log cabin. Like any parents, when her child was born, we were overjoyed. Like many parents, we were overwhelmed. Like fewer parents, we weren't confronted with the harsh reality of either spending those first few critical months with our baby or going back to work. And she signed, she signed it to Duchess of Sussex, even though the Queen Elizabeth has said you cannot use that title for political ends. But Meghan seems not to care about offending her in-laws, you think? Um, so, of course, they've had their second child now, and they were quarantined for COVID and all of that. Now she may be taking baby steps toward the greatest show on earth, the White House. And some royal expert is quoted as saying that Meghan knows that you are who you associate with and is purposely positioning herself alongside female left-leaning leadership. She is incredibly intelligent and calculated when it comes to her career, blah, blah, blah. Uh, An experienced Republican campaign operative, speaking off the record, identifies two paths to high office for Markle. Quote, One is using California as a stepping stone. Well, California elected Arnold Schwarzenegger, so one could understand that. And Ronald Reagan. The other is jumping directly into the presidential hunt. If Joe Biden declines to seek re-election, she should simply decamp to Iowa, cultivate the common touch, and try to persuade activists in the land of corn that she can revive the Obama model of combining vague progressivism with a megawatt Celebrity. Now, this insider does say, you know, she could be a tough sell as a first-time candidate. Maybe she should run for something else first. I mean, look, this is the biggest bunch of claptrap I have ever heard. Uh, the woman has never held political office of any kind. She is a very controversial figure because of her megxit, the uh, breakup with the royal family. She is very well-spoken and a celebrity and undoubtedly smart and all of that. And, of course, a former actress, hence the... Um, Uh, comparisons to people like Reagan and Arnold. But she's not going to run for the White House, and she's not saying she's going to run for the White House, and she's not dropping in she's going to run for the White House, but this British publication says, well, blimey, she might run for the White House. Or click on this story to find out whether it maybe, kind of, sort of, might be true in our wildest imagination. Well, that's about it for us. Always appreciate your listening. Hope you'll subscribe at Apple iTunes or many other places. We'll be back here tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.